You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, Rachel, are you recovered from uh, last week's uh, defeat? <laughs> In the uh, no. weird ways to die challenge. No, should we should we Folks, tell them the you, odds? <laughs> uh, we we figured out if you had if you just flipped a coin for each answer, uh, you know it'd be like if you flipping it wrong six times in a row. Like uh-huh. basically, it was one out of sixty four. I think is the odds. Yeah. Um, it, it's not. It's not yeah, great. It was. Yeah, I'm. I guess you, I'm kind in of theory, recovered. Should have known better. I truly yeah. should have, honestly. Um, it just goes to show it's not always logical when nature attacks. But nope. anywho, we are moving on uh, episode 151 here. Uh, we are getting deeper and deeper into winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. And so what I've been teaching over the last you know month or so here has been changing. Since mm-hmm. we live in the Northland where it gets cold and snowy, I've been teaching a lot about, about winter. Uh, and how animals survive. And so the big four survival strategies, if you don't know, are animals can stay active, they can hibernate, they can migrate, or they can die. Mm-hmm. And uh, isn't it that mad? last one? Mad? Is the well, I mean, it, it, it acronym? Mads? Yeah, it, it, it sort of depends on how you uh, which ones you include and don't include. Mm-hmm. But yeah, MADS, migrate, uh, uh, adapt. Uh, it it kind of depends. There's different acronyms for it and what the letters mm-hmm. stand for. But basically, it's staying active, hibernating, migrating, or dying. And that last one always really gets a funny look out of the kids' faces because death doesn't really seem like a survival strategy. <laughs> but I would agree. We get to talk about it tends to go yeah, against then, the whole know, survival aspect. It, it leads into conversations about insects and lifespans and all kinds of fun topics. And that strategy is not my topic for this week's show. Uh, but just so I don't leave you hanging uh, and being all confused, the actual strategy is to lay eggs and then die. Yes. So the oh, eggs or larvae survive nice. the winter. So I said those are the big four survival strategies. There are other ones. And one of them is complicated. And that's torpor. And what makes it complicated Uh is that our language is inexact. There's really no way through this morass other than some disambiguation. So allow me to clarify. Torpor is a state of reduced body temperature and reduced metabolic rate. And if you're thinking, gee, that sounds a lot like hibernation, you'd be right. As (laughs) hibernation is really a type of torpor. So when an animal is in hibernation, you can also say they are in torpor. And the confusion, I think, comes in because there's something called daily torpor, uh, which is usually like what I mean when I say torpor, like talking with kids. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just like a, a short-term state, sort of like a mini hibernation. It may just be something the animals do to make it through a cold night. Some birds will do this. They can lower their body temperature mm-hmm. and reduce metabolic functions until they like, warm up in the morning and carry yeah. on with life. Like goldfinches or so, chickadees, right? 
Exactly, yeah. So you sometimes see a division between animals that are true hibernators and those that use daily torpor. <clears throat> and some people lump those all together and say, no, <clears throat> hibernation is just an extended torpor. You know, the, the trouble is, of the course, like we always say, nature laughs at our little boxes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things don't necessarily fit into one or the other. A great example is around here when winter gets really cold, raccoons will go into like a two-week torpor state. And we don't necessarily call it hibernation. Um, like they torpor through the coldest days and then they rouse for the warm nights when they raid garbage cans and go to the bathroom before crawling into a big ball of other raccoons in a hollow tree and like sleeping or to more exact torporing for two more weeks. So that doesn't really fit into this, you know, short term, long term thing. Right. So with that out of the way, I, I wanted to tell you about a potentially cool discovery uh, and it involves torpor. Ooh. So it's kind of why I was bringing that all up. Uh, this was in the journal Nature Metabolism. Uh, fairly recently, a group of 14 researchers uh, published a paper called Induction of Torpor-like Hypothermic and Hypometabolic State in Rodents by Ultrasound. Oh, what? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, previously, apparently we had known, or I guess scientists had known, I didn't know, that if you stimulate certain parts of a mouse's brain, you can induce torpor. Uh, this was a very invasive and complicated procedure, though. The mice actually had to be genetically engineered to react to certain chemicals, and then those chemicals had to be injected into their brains. Um, and what these particular Thanks. scientists showed was that if instead of that complicated process, if they just placed a transcranial ultrasound uh, stimulator very specifically on a certain part of the heads of mice, and stimulated a very specific part of the brain with ultrasound, they could actually induce a torpor state in the mice without all the other invasive techniques. Uh, they actually, it's very cute, they put the little, like, transducers on the mice has head while they're in an MRI so they could make sure they got it, like, in the exact right spot. That's really cute. So the <laughs> nice. mice they used uh, were a species that naturally has the ability to go into torpor. Uh, but what they showed was that they were able to induce this state in um, also in rats and rats do not naturally go into torpor. No. So that's like, mm. whoa, hold okay. on. That's super cool. You can get this to happen in animals that naturally go into torpor, but potentially they feel they can induce a torpor state in animals that are mammals that don't normally go into torpor. And that is part of what is super cool about this research and you might be saying well okay but why why do we care why would we want to study this well first off from a purely research perspective we want to understand how things work and we want the more we understand of nature and science the better but from a practical standpoint knowing how to induce torpor could be incredibly useful people have long dreamed of using torpor uh, as a state for astronauts to be in while traveling long distances in space there are huge practical reasons why it is better to have your crew in a torpor state uh, on the way to and from Mars, for example. People in torpor consume fewer calories, they use less oxygen, uh, they don't have to deal with boredom, and they can be more effectively shielded from radiation. Right. However, there's more down-to-earth reasons we'd love to be able to induce torpor in humans. 
Patients having a heart attack or a stroke could potentially have a greater survival yeah. rate if we could slow down their metabolic processes. Mm-hmm. I imagine if paramedics could put, put a beanie cap on a heart attack patient and put them into a kind of medical stasis on the way to the hospital in the operating room. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be like a, coma. a total game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so like all science, though, this is a baby step. Uh, the paper uh, keeps saying that they induced hypothermia and torpor. But what they really showed was that there was increased activity in the area of the shoulder blades, uh, which is where brown fat is made and stored. And and also that mice's tails heated up, uh, which is one of the ways apparently that mice shed heat while getting ready to hibernate. Um, Hmm. And they also noted that the mice slowed down a bit and got more lethargic. What, What didn't happen, and I think this is pretty important to note, is that the mice didn't go into hibernation right this was more of a, a torpor state where they were just kind of reduced they slowed down they were cooling their bodies down but they weren't like hibernating like i think we would normally think of like these nearly frozen animals that are just totally out of it yeah uh it was kind of a light torpor although i think the most impressive part for me was that their heart rate went down by 47 percent oh wow. which is whoa very substantial uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, there has been some criticism of this research um, of people saying, well, is this really what happened? You know, was maybe this is just what happens when you, you know, heat up a mouse's brain with ultrasound, like they shed heat out of their tail. Like, so there, there, there needs to be replication uh, and, and further study of this. Absolutely. Um, and when you come looking at humans, don't be thinking you're going to put on your torpor cap anytime soon. Uh, there's some real practical issues. Humans' brains are far larger and our heads are much thicker than that of a mouse or a rat. And so it definitely remains to be seen whether or not, uh, you know, there will, there will someday even be a practical medical application of this effect. But this may lead to a major medical breakthrough, you know, in our lifetimes. Or it may simply be another interesting quirk that, while interesting, isn't really practical. And I guess time time will tell and eventually we'll find out. Cool. Such cool but research, that's though. That's what I have Thank for you, you this week. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. I thought it was pretty weird, the idea of using sound waves to put animals into torpor. And I was like, yep, yeah. that's, that's weird. We got to talk about that. That's wild. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to find out, Rachel, what you've got for us this week. Welcome back, everyone. So as we mentioned, I believe it was last week um, or the week before, I recently-ish went to Florida, which is where my aunt and uncle live. And now, because they didn't want to die in the cold, apparently. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. That is a quote from them. My uncle said, I don't want to die in a snowbank. And I'm like, that's fair. Anyway, while we were down there... Yeah. While we were down there, we went to several different parks and had a lot of really good like nature experiences. At least I did. My family absolutely ditched me at a museum while I was checking out some nature stuff. (laughs) And I walked around until I found them again. But one of the parks that we went to, as we were driving in, we were driving in and we all saw fascinating little tortoise 
on the side of the road. And we're just, we all, my aunt checked to see if anybody was behind us. We all got out of the car, left the doors open, and took pictures of the tortoise. And it was a great bonding experience. Wonderful. The tortoise okay. that we found, <laughs> the, tor- the tortoise is the gopher tortoise. And it oh, is yeah. the, oh, okay. yeah. it is vulnerable and it was very exciting. We actually saw two while we were there, which was super fun because we were only there for like an hour. Um, but it is one of the largest tortoise and it is in North America and is actually a native to North America as well. So they are active all throughout nice. the throughout the year and that's what i want to talk about this week i just want to talk about this tortoise now there cool. are a number go for tortoise go for it go for tortoise i've heard of them but i don't know a lot about them <laughs> oh they're really cute also on a very different note i will be posting this picture on our instagram and on our social media it will be from the tortoise from my trip which is very fun now nice. the gopher tortoise is it looks like a just a regular tortoise okay so it has a domed shell it's a terrestrial tortoise it doesn't really hang out in the water on the water or anything like that they are on land they're really adapted for burrowing Uh, they look like any other tortoise to be fair they have really big four limbs that they use to get around generally speaking they can be about um, anywhere the maximum shell size or shell length is about 16 inches or 41 centimeters. So they're not huge, it's good but size. they, it, yeah. it's a decent sized tortoise, right? Yeah. Now these are herbivores. Uh, they go around and they are grazing whatever plants that they can find that are really lo- low level. Cause they don't get very, um, well, they're tortoises, <laughs> so they can't reach. Right? They're not climbing trees. They're not climbing trees. However, the I did... The arboreal tortoise. That would be amazing. <laughs> That'd be so fun. Now, I bet you all are wondering, like, okay, so I'm talking about a gopher tortoise this week. It doesn't sound overly strange, right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Right? Okay. It, it doesn't sound weird. super strange. Like, we've done some wild things, and some of it is... The fact that I feel like we get jaded sometimes on how strange things are. Like we think it's normal and it's not. Anyway. Yeah. The gopher tortoise is really unique in the way that it burrows. Gopher tortoises are just like any of the other tortoises in gopher. There's a genus of gopherus, which is a wonderful (laughs) genus name. Nice. Nice. uh, I like it. The scientific name for the gopher tortoise is Gopherus polyphemus. Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. Nice. Name. Easy to say. Love it. <laughs> um, when we were in this little state park, we kept finding all of these like netted or like um like fenced off little holes in the ground. And we were kept wondering what they were for. And my aunt was like, oh, those are for like they must be eggs stations or whatever where the eggs were laid and we looked at a little bit more and they're not where the tortoises lay eggs gopher tortoises actually dig really long burrows so they spend most of their time underneath the ground like and they dig burrows that are 15 feet long wow 
and six I mean, and I, a half feet deep. I guess hence the name. Whoa. Go for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. There you go. Um, they can go deeper. Uh, so they have found burrows that actually go up to 10 feet deep and they can even be up to 48 feet or 15 meters in length. It depends on the sand and the other materials that are in the area while they're burrowing and digging. Um, but that's where they spend most of their time to help protect them from predators, from any cold fire, anything like that. Wow. But what's Oh, fire. Cool? Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they need a decent size amount of space to be able to live about four acres. But what's cool about that okay. is because of the burrows, they're actually providing shelter and space for at least 360 other species. Wow. So they are, they're, they're, they're a key, keystone they species. are a keystone species, especially in, they're primarily found in the Southwest. So like Texas, uh, Florida, Georgia, and all of that. But th- I just, the amount of species that rely on the tor- on this tortoise and their, their burrows is phenomenal. Uh, for example, they are really important for species of like gopher frogs or several different snakes. Like the eastern indigo snake will also use the tunnel to live and be able to find, feet, uh, find food and such. Uh, it's not just permanent refuge. Sometimes it's just uh, temp- temporary and will live with the other creatures as they are um, in the same space. Like it, if the tortoise is there, they'll live with them. If they're not, they won't. Um, but it's, they're also really important actually for burrowing owls, which will use mm. the oh, sure. uh, yeah. tunnels that are created from the gopher tortoise as well. Um, yeah, so I, it's not a super strange, uh, uh, creature that I have this week, but I really wanted to talk about gopher tortoises because we talk about keystone species and how if you take one species out of, we've talked about it before where some creature, some animals are more important in certain environments and ecosystems than others, um, not that any animal is necessarily not important, but a keystone species impacts right, right. many more and the habitat and the structure and the homes and of that particular habitat than others. And taking it away is pretty detrimental. Um, and this is just a really cool creature that I was able to find and actually see in the wild. And I just wanted, I wanted to share. It was really cool. That's um, awesome. That yeah, no, really that that's blew me away with the the yeah. makes sense why they call it gopher tortoises that they have like a six foot. Yeah, deep and the fact that they that's so that's long, a like, very that's cool. large burrow. Like I can't imagine. I'm like, okay, you could bury a body in that, but yeah. it's so that's oh, so deep. That's <laughs> where your brain goes. That's where my brain did go. But to be fair, I listen to a lot of true crime, so that is also fair. Um, yeah. I will say oh, one okay. thing. That All was right. wild for me. Don't was... go camping with Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was really uh, wild to learn about yeah, in Florida uh, was because of the protectedness of the gopher tortoise habitat. They actually right. are pretty sensitive to uh, hurricanes. So there's a 
Hurricane oh, sure. Ian, for example, some of the tortoises were actually like picked up and like moved from from one space to another because of They're the storm. Um, so get, that wow. burrow flooded. The burrow would right. get flooded, Jeez. but no, they like physically were moved miles and miles away, which is wild. But that's what wow. I have for you all this week. Go for tortoise. Cool. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. One of my favorite things to do in the summer is to go on a raft or kayak trip down the Mississippi River north of Minneapolis. Ooh, Mm. that's a good one. It Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, it is just so peaceful on that stretch of river and you can see all kinds of amazing wildlife. Uh, you know, from bald eagles, peregrine falcons, kingfishers, beavers, and otters. And there are some islands in the middle of the river you can pull off on and explore, which is super fun. And I love, I just love wandering around on the shore and looking for agates and other cool rocks. But, you know, one of the Mm -hmm. most exciting things to find uh, might not sound that exciting to many people, but I love finding mussels. Ooh, so oh, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, Rachel, when you brought up your your topic on scallops <laughs> a couple weeks ago, and I mentioned that I was working on a, another bivalve, this is yep. the one. I'm going to talk about freshwater oh, mushrooms. Beautiful. Nice. Yes. Um, Ooh, pe- nice. Fun. Get some heel splitters and all kinds of. Oh, good stuff. we're going to get oh. into the names. Um, people might mistake them for rocks, but they're nice. actually really exciting animals. And they are kind of, uh, they're kind of metal, uh, to be honest. There <laughs> are. Yeah. A hu- yeah. <laughs> there are a huge variety of freshwater mussels uh, in the Mississippi River. And in fact, the area around Minneapolis is one of the best places to find them. There are freshwater mussels found all over the world, but actually the area of greatest muscle diversity is North America. And there are over 300 species Hmm. here and more than 50 species that can be found in Minnesota alone. So that's a lot more than I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. If I say muscle and you're thinking about the kind you can buy at the grocery store to eat, um, they do have that same basic bivalve body, body plan, but a different look. Mm -hmm. So Instead of being purplish black oval and about, you know, three inches long, they come in all kinds of shapes, sizes, and colors. And as Kirk was starting to allude to, they have some amazing names. Uh, Spectacle case. Oh, yeah. (laughs) White heel splitter. Fat mucket. Pistol grip. I like that name. Purple warty back. Fat mucket is such a great insult to call somebody. It's a fat fat mucket. God, uh, what monkey, a good insult. Yeah. Monkey face, round pig toe, <laughs> uh, fat, fat pocketbook. These are just a few of the delightful names that have been attached to the different muscles in our state. Right. Beautiful. And, you know, Rachel, your discussion about keystone species uh, just a short while mm-hmm. ago in this episode was a really good lead in because mussels are a keystone species. They're incredibly important to our freshwater ecosystems. And, you know, oh, like all beautiful. bivalves, they're filter feeders. So all day long, they just sit mm-hmm. in the muscle beds mm-hmm. and pass water through their bodies using their siphons. And any particles that are in the water are collected in the muscle's gills. 
they digest what Mm -hmm. is food and they poop out any unused material, including sediment. So actually a single muscle can filter up to 57 liters. That's 15 gallons of water a day. Whoa. Just let that sink in for a moment. So if that's just a single muscle, a whole bed of muscles is amazingly efficient at clearing the water around them. And when the, Water is clearer that lets light penetrate through the water so plants can grow. And the -hmm. muscles in plants also provide habitat for other underwater creatures. So mussels really are, you know, a keystone species. They're kind of ecosystem engineers in in a somewhat similar way to how, you know, beavers radically change the environment to create a new habitat or gopher tortoises, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, many species of freshwater mussels are critically endangered due to laundry list river damming, pollution, competition from invasive zebra mussels. Uh, you know, however, some cleanup and restoration efforts have been successful and some species have have made something of a comeback, which is encouraging. For example, the Mississippi River historically had 41 species of mussels uh, and they were all extirpated from the river by the late 1800s due to pollution. Today, there are 29 of those species that are back. So they've been successfully reintroduced. That's great. They're doing okay. Yeah. Um, All right. So at this point, you know, our, our, our listener may be a little more on board with thinking mussels are kind of more interesting than maybe they imagined, but I don't, think anything I've talked about would qualify so far as metal. Uh, buckle up. No, I mean, right. not especially. Do you, met, you say metal is in like hardcore? Hardcore. We're talking yeah. hardcore. So um, like I'm going killer. to talk. Yeah, I'm going to talk now about muscle reproduction. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. So fertilization <sighs> is not, not particularly noteworthy. Here. Not yep. noteworthy. The females have <laughs> eggs in a kind of a brood pouch. The males release sperm into the water. Females take it in through their siphons. It fertilizes the eggs. They develop into larvae. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's our problem. Mussels are sessile. That means they don't move around much. They don't move. And, yeah. you know. Right. How... They're not scallops, right? Right. They're not scallops. How are they going to get all the little baby mussel larvae a new spot where they won't be so crowded. It's kind of similar to the problem that a mm. lot of plants have. Getting their seeds right. farther away Especially from... Especially like yeah. them, so you're not like intermixing either too. Right, exactly. Well, Oh, similar... you mean like spreading your genetic material far and wide? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So similar to plants that have burrs that hitch a ride on passing animals or, you know, hiker's pants, the baby mussels actually become temporary parasites on the gills of passing fish. What? What? That is awesome. (laughs) They they latch on with their little tiny shells and the gills form a kind of a cyst, a little cyst around them, and then they survive off of the fish's bloodstream, basically, until they... Go through metamorphosis. Wow. Yeah. And then they drop Whoa. off and find a suitable spot on the riverbed. Oh, you think that's cool? Wait. Just wait. Um, oh. How do they get onto the fish's <laughs> How gills? long do I have to wait? 
Some yeah, species. how did it get on? But oh, yeah, oh. I, I don't think oh, they. It, you know, it's probably like I, oh, I didn't I look think into I've, this. I, th- I'm I think not I've sure. heard of this. A few days to a few weeks, probably, but I'm not sure. But you know, okay. some species do just sort of release their larvae into the water and rely on chance for catching a suitable fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, some mm-hmm. species do something a little more devious. Uh, turns out, more aggressive. yeah, more aggressive. <laughs> turns out some mussel species are incredible mimics. They produce, yes, they produce yes, lures. I've seen this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wild, you guys. So they, like a little, like a little worm little fish. lure. Yeah. Whoa. Like they produce lures that resemble oh, the prey the fish, right? of their preferred host species, which in the literature are referred what? to as seen that. dupes. They're dupes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's uh, a great name the, for that. <laughs> you know, the fish will try to eat the lure and it explodes in a cloud of muscle larvae, some of which are inevitably yeah, drawn into right their in the gills. To hit your, yeah. Poof. So. The lures are actually extensions of the mother mussel's mantle, which is the fleshy part of the mussel inside the shell. Right. And some look like little minnows hanging out just next to the mussel shell. Some look like... Yeah, that's, that's the one I've seen where it just looks like a little swimming fish. Yeah. It's, it's so... It's, it's amazing. Yep. Totally. Some look like crayfish and they... Every so often, the, the muscle will move its what? mantle in that, that sort of scuttling crayfish? crayfish kind of way. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh, some, get this, some are out I'm at the end of the I'm looking at a long, picture. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's uh, some are out, too close. Yeah, it's amazing. Some have these long, almost invisible strands, sort of like fishing line. And at, a bunch, at the end, there's a bunch of things that look like little squiggly worms, but are actually full of muscle larvae. Um, some look like black, black fly larvae. Um, yeah, but all of these are just little packets of baby mussels and they all give the fish a giant poof, unpleasant surprise in the face when chomped on. Right, right to the face. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even more amazing (laughs) to think about is unlike scallops, mussels have no eyes. So, you know, that Uh fake crayfish you were just exclaiming about is actually part of an animal that has never seen a crayfish that is just how did it do that (laughs) (laughs) how Um, does it know the magic of selective pressure yeah the amazing power of evolution is just it's really mind-boggling sometimes and i think muscles are a prime example of that and i just i wanted to share that i first learned about muscles and their lures from a vox.com article by benji jones which i highly recommend i also got some good information from the freshwater mollusk conservation society mississippi park connection and the national wildlife federation this week awesome i i had heard of that before but then totally forgotten about it oh yeah so it's I, I love being, it's like, oh, no, oh, yeah, no, no, I've heard of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so cool. Oh, I had heard about the parasite parasitizing on fish gills from mussels yeah. before, but, like, I I had forgotten about the, the lures. That's wild. So check out, check out the videos online of them, oh, like, so getting cool. the big puff to the face of all the oh. little babies. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's really wild. 
We'll definitely have yeah. a picture of Allure on our Instagram. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I have for you this week. Thanks, Victoria. And yeah, that's Thank the end you. of our show this week. It's been awesome hanging out with you guys as always. Yeah, it's been great, and Victoria. Thanks for listening. And yeah. I think I think this is the last show of 2023, yeah, is it? I not? think so, yeah. Oh have my a gosh, we'll see everybody next, next year. year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. See you soon. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.